Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 378. Uh, no music today, no countdown, trying to be low-key, not very loud. It is inappropriately late here in Hawaii. It is What time is it? Let me look at my phone. It is 12, 12 p.m., which means it's 6 a.m. on the East Coast, which is why I'm recording. I want to get this out. Uh, and so I, let, let me not waste any time. Uh, I want to get into the show. We'll start with the headline. In the opening game of the NFL season, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat the Dallas Cowboys 31 to 29. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, first of all, it was an incredible game, like really fun to watch. And I think as fans of football, we got spoiled. I mean, to have the first game of the NFL season end the way it did, uh, you know, with a minute and 24 seconds left in the game, Tom Brady gets the ball down one point, needs a field goal to win. He got the field goal, put together a great drive, had a great throw down the left sideline to Chris Godwin, back shoulder fade. Uh, and then Ryan Suckup nailed the game winner from 36 yards out. Buccaneers win. Now, I have to admit, this game was a lot closer than I expected. And I have mixed emotions about it. First of all, I predicted that Dallas would go 6-11 and this year. And I'm already feeling a lot of pressure. People are messaging me, telling me I got to back off on my take and backtrack. And you know, how could you say 6-11? and and look, I could be wrong. You know, you make predictions, you're bound to get some of them wrong. Um, but, and look, also, I'm very open to changing my mind. I've repeatedly in the past tried to be very willing to evolve with the new information I get. But it's also only one game. I remember last year, I said that Jacksonville was going to be terrible and tanking. And week one, they beat the Indianapolis Colts. And I went, oh, wow. And I, I reversed my opinion. And I shouldn't have. I should have stuck with my guns. So uh, let's see where Dallas is in November. I'm not ready to be like, oh, they're going to have a great year and win a Super Bowl. Like, slow down. It's one game that, by the way, they didn't win. And the skeptic in me wants to say, well, this is exactly what I predicted. They're a fun team that can't win games. Now, I can't say that with a straight face. I don't actually believe that. And Dallas did impress me in a couple of ways. Like, I have to give them credit, first of all, to their quarterback, Dak Prescott. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Dak was incredible against Tampa. Especially, you know, with context, you realize, like, this guy is coming off of a season-ending injury last year. Barely played it all last year. He's really not been playing very much in training camp. He not only didn't look rusty at all, but, you know, I, and I truly believe this. Against Tampa, that's the best I've ever seen Dak Prescott play. Like, I've never seen Dak look like that. Great pocket movement, big accurate throws downfield, great pre-snap reads, getting the ball out of his hands very, very quickly, very decisive decision-making, uh, stepping into hits as he throws. He had a throw down the right side of Amari Cooper, I guess maybe on an out route, where he's got nailed, no hesitation, stepped into it. Like, that does not look like a guy that hasn't played, I think it was in 333 days, like Dak did not show any sign of rust. And in fact, in fact, again, like he played better than I've ever seen him play in the NFL. And honestly, I think this is the first time I've ever felt like Dak is not overpaid, where clearly this dude put in a ton of work and he's earning that contract. I remember when Joe Flacco got a massive contract with Baltimore, you know, years ago now. And I, I kind of rolled my eyes at that and I went like, oh, Joe Flacco, like, come on, man. And I, I think... Looking back, I kind of felt that way about Dak Prescott. Dak got this massive contract, and I just felt like a little bit he was getting overpaid. And look, I like Dak. He's got a great story. I don't really understand how you can hate the Cowboys. I don't really get how anybody hates Dak Prescott, the person. Like, he's too compelling of a story and a human being. Seems like a great guy. But I, I, I think I did really, in my heart, feel like Dak Prescott was overpaid. And I'll tell you what, if he plays like that, the rest of the year, then Dak is worth every penny. He had this great play where he recovered from a bad snap on the goal line, caught it through a touchdown pass. And on the day, let me be clear, Dak Prescott was 42 for 58 passing, 403 yards, three touchdowns and an interception. Just a monumentally good football game. And yeah, Dak threw an interception. Now for context, let's be clear. He actually threw a great ball over the middle to C.D. Lamb and went right through C.D. Lamb's hands. Should have been caught. Should have been at like. Uh, should have been a play where you go, "What a great throw! What a great catch!" Instead, got picked off because C.D. Lamb didn't do his job. Uh, now it is kind of a wash though because Tampa Bay linebacker Levante David did drop an interception earlier in the game, so they got one they shouldn't have. They also dropped the one they should have had. I don't know. It's kind of a wash. They all kind of averages out. 
but it really cannot be overstated that Dak Prescott was easily throwing for big chunks of yardage downfield. And, and by the way, both C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper had over 100 yards receiving. Like, just a phenomenal game from Dak Prescott. Very, very impressive. And I walked away feeling great about Dak. And I would imagine pretty much every other Anybody who's a fan of the Cowboys, I'm not a Cowboys fan, but I'm sure that Cowboys fans walked away from this game going like, yeah, that was money well spent. We feel very good about this. Uh, Now, the Cowboys as a whole, aside from Dak Prescott, there's some good stuff. There's some bad stuff. Uh, First of all, I maintain that the Cowboys secondary is a really big weakness. They just do not have a number two corner. And and look, teams are going to make them pay for that. When they play teams that have good receivers, they're going to attack that number two backup corner spot, and it's going to be a weakness all year. Uh, but first, I want to give some credit to Dallas because they had a, like, their coaching staff uh, had some weird moments, but I want to give them credit where credit is due. Their offensive game plan was fantastic because Tampa Bay's front seven is loaded. They stop the run really well. They're st- they stifle offensive lines. Uh, they get pressure on quarterbacks. They hit quarterbacks a lot. And Dallas had this great plan to neutralize Tampa's front seven by, you know, getting the ball out of Dak's hands very, very quickly and not really running the ball. You know, they they only ran the ball 14 times with running backs, the Cowboys did. And Dak, meanwhile, threw the ball 58 times. They were like, Dak, get the ball out of your hands very, very quickly. Attack the perimeter. And look, if a defense has a good pass rush, it doesn't matter if the quarterback's getting the ball out of his hands almost immediately. Like, hey, Great, you can get after the quarterback. Oh, but the ball's out of his hands before he can even do anything. So I, I want to give credit there because I'm, I'm going to talk about some stuff the Cowboys coaching staff did that I didn't like. But I want to start with that baseline of praising them because, to be fair, like their game plan on offense was brilliant. And it's part of how they were so successful against Tampa. Now, Cowboys coach Mike McCarthy had a number of very weird in-game decisions. Number one, there was a moment before, before halftime where Cowboys kicker Greg Zerline, a, a guy who leading up to halftime had been struggling all game. He missed an extra point. He missed a short field goal. And so to me, it was very baffling when Mike McCarthy made the decision to send out Greg Zerline to kick a 60-yard field goal before halftime. And it's like, I just that seems like a bad decision for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're not likely to make the kick. But second of all, they got lucky because the result was that Tampa got the ball at midfield with 15 seconds before halftime. And think about it this way. With one big play, Tampa Bay could have been in field goal range and gotten even more points before halftime. So I would say that Mike McCarthy got lucky before halftime that he didn't give up at least a field goal to Tampa Bay. Uh, And then there was another mistake later, uh, very end of the game, fourth and six. And now let me be transparent here. It's kind of a catch-22. You're doomed if you don't. Or I guess you're damned if you don't. You're damned if you do. And I, I think no matter what Mike McCarthy did here, somebody was going to criticize him. Now, I, I would like to think I land in the camp of guys who would have felt better about him going for it. But well, let me break it down. On fourth and six, with just over a minute left, Dallas kicked a field goal to take a one-point lead. And the result was that they gave the ball back to Tom Brady with a minute and 24 seconds left. Now, look, if you go for it on fourth and six and you don't get it, then the media, especially in Dallas, is going to crucify Mike McCarthy. So I I acknowledge the catch-22 here. But I would not have had a kicker. Like First of all, they're lucky that their kicker, Greg Zerline, made the kick. Remember, he's at that point had missed three different kicks in this game. So it's a really weird vote of confidence for a guy who's missed three kicks to go kick the game leading, you know, the the go-ahead 48-yard field goal with a minute and 24 seconds left. And then number two, like, I simply would not give the ball back to Tom Brady. Like, that never seems like a good idea. I would rather lose on fourth and six with control of the game than just give the ball back to Tom Brady, roll the dice, and hope he's not going to take the lead. Uh, You could have justified going forward on fourth and six. Like, I know that's a hard question to answer, but you would have said, well, look, our kicker's struggling. I'm not going to give the ball back to Tom Brady. Dak Prescott's having the game of his life. Like, Mike McCarthy could have justified it to the media after the game if they'd gone for it on fourth and six and not gotten it. But also, what if they'd gotten it? They would have had control of the ball. They would have made the field goal. Like, they could have won this game. This was a very, for many reasons, I'll get to it later. This is a very winnable game for Dallas. Now, Tom Brady did get the ball with a minute left, and he did put together a great drive. They did win the game instead of Dallas. 
Uh, and I, I just got to say, like, I had no doubt when Tom Brady got the ball back, minute 24 seconds left, am I the only person who's like, Tom Brady's going to win this football game? Like, we all thought that. And it just seemed, seemed weird to me that, like, was Mike McCarthy the only person on planet Earth that didn't think that giving the ball back to Tom Brady was a bad idea when you've barely been able to stop him all night, threw for four touchdowns, like 300 and, what was it, 379 yards passing, like, just dominating the Cowboys' uh, defense. And so, I don't know, man. I, I just, Tom Brady's done it too many times for me to be comfortable giving him the ball at the end of a game. I'm like, I am just not messing with that at all. I would have rather gone forward on fourth and six. Now, uh, and look, I, someone's going to comment because that's an easy thing to say, but I, I truly would hope that in the future, if later during the season, there's another moment like that where, and, and Tom Brady's a different beast, right? Normally I'd say kick the field goal, take the sure points, but against Tom Brady in particular, I'm not giving that guy the ball back at the end of a game. Now, there are a couple of misleading stats from this game. First of all, one of the field goals that Greg Zerline missed, I don't know that it's fair to blame him. Like, he should not have been put in a position where he had to kick a 60-yard field goal. That's never a good idea, uh, and especially when he's already struggling on kicking that night. In my opinion, that's on Mike McCarthy, not on Greg Zerline. Like, there should be a little asterisk next next to that one where he was not put in a good position to be successful, which is what a coach's job is, is to put his players in a spot where they can do well. Now, there are also two stats where Tom Brady had two interceptions. I would put an asterisk next to them as well, where one of them bounced off of Leonard Fournette's hands on a screen pass, got picked off. Another one later was uh, right before halftime, Tom Brady threw a Hail Mary that got picked off. That's not bad decision-making. That's unfortunate stuff that happens. And so I, I always try to point out when... Something happens that is not like because people hold interceptions against players forever. And, and, and later in the year, people go, well, Tom Brady had two interceptions against, against Dallas. Well, let's be clear. They weren't like he made bad throws or bad decisions. One bounced off his running back's hands. The other was on a Hail Mary before halftime. That's not really fair to blame Tom Brady for that. I will circle back later if I have to. Now, on paper, Dallas should have won this game. They dominated time of possession they had, you know, Tampa had 11 penalties for 106 yards. That's awful. On top of that, Tampa also had four turnovers, two interceptions, the ones I mentioned, and two fumbles. So for Tampa to have four turnovers and still win the game, I just, I, like, my interpretation of that fact is that Tampa, I think, played really, really sloppy and helped make Dallas look a lot better than they actually are, or at least maybe not better than they actually are, but they definitely made Dallas look good by allowing them to hang around this game. Uh, you know, for example, Chris Godwin fumbled on the goal line. And if instead of fumbling, Tampa had scored a touchdown there, they would have been up by two scores late in the game and would not have needed some dramatic comeback to get the victory. So, like, I just think a lot of the stuff that allowed Dallas to hang around was Tampa making mistakes rather than Dallas being this great football team. Now, there are a couple of other things. On a third and six, Dallas made a, a call that I, I, I would criticize, uh, a defensive call. They blitzed and they played cover zero, which means that they did an all-out blitz after Tom Brady on defense and played man-to-man -man coverage with no help at all from any safeties or any other help at all. And to me, that's a bad call. I, first of all, I never would blitz Tom Brady if I was a defensive coordinator. Tom Brady likes it. He's very happy to have you bring extra defenders after him. He'll take a hit because it gives him better matchups downfield. Third and six in the red zone. They did that. Tom Brady threw an easy touchdown pass. And I was sitting there going like, come on, guy. Like, <laughs> don't we know? Like, you, you do not blitz Tom Brady. That is never a good decision. Uh, it's also crazy. I, I want to mention, I cannot believe that this Tampa Bay team has Antonio Brown. Like, it's the, the word that comes to mind is gluttonous. You ever seen a guy, like in, uh, in movies, you see a fat king who, like, doesn't need more food, but they bring in another roasted pig, and you're like, man, that guy's just a glutton. I cannot believe that the Buccaneers have Antonio Brown as a receiver. They don't need him. It's crazy how talented he is. He's just extra, and gosh, I, I, it makes Tampa really, really hard to defend. He had a couple big catches down the sideline. Uh, one of them was a long 47-yard touchdown pass. There was one even earlier before that, though, where Tom Brady, gosh, it was almost like a check down where, you know, Antonio Brown ran a sluggo down the right sideline, Tom Brady doesn't see anybody open, just throws a beautiful ball. And Antonio Brown is so good with his body control where he wasn't really open. There's a defender behind him, but he slows down his body, waits till the ball is coming and down, dropping ahead of him, and then accelerates under the ball and just beats his man to the ball. And that's 
manipulation of body control and where to where and when to go after the ball. My, my buddy who played receiver at Portland State broke it down for me. Just Antonio Brown is so good, and the Buccaneers don't need him, and it's crazy. I just have to mention it's insane that they have him on that roster. Uh, running back Giovanni Bernard had two catches for Tampa. Uh, one was a crucial catch on their final field goal drive. Uh, you know, very quietly, Giovanni Bernard was a really good addition to that Buccaneers roster. We're going to see that payoff later in the year where his ability to catch passes out of the backfield is invaluable. It's kind of the James White type of player that Tampa didn't really have last year. Like, they won a Super Bowl without that type of player last year. So having Giovanni Bernard just is more extra they didn't need. Uh, Tampa corner Sean Murphy Bunting got hurt. Apparently, he will be fine, though. Uh, the quote is just, and I say just, you know, in quotations, he just dislocated his elbow, something you or me would, like, be horrible about. It, it would just be awful for me to dislocate my elbow. You, you would probably feel the same way. Uh, he's probably going to suit up next week. But, uh, you know, they were okay. Sean Murphy Bunting got hurt at corner. They replaced him with Jamel Dean. Jamel Dean did a pretty good job. Uh, it was interesting hearing Chris Collinsworth repeatedly talk about how Tampa, they have no depth in their secondary they do. They have Jamel Dean. He's a really good player who uh, they, they have three good corners in Tampa. So if one of them gets hurt, Jamel Dean can step up. And we saw that against Dallas. Um, I don't know, man. One final thought I have is that uh, we got to see Drew Brees broadcast at halftime. That was pretty cool. I, I've never seen Drew Brees work on TV before. He looked a bit nervous, but I want to give credit to Drew Brees. He did a really good job breaking down Dak Prescott. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to see more Drew Brees. As time goes on, that's all my thoughts on the Tampa Bay uh, Dallas game. And I'm curious what other people think. Please feel free to write in. I probably talked. How long did I talk about that? 20 minutes, <laughs> 18, 19, 20 minutes about uh, the Buccaneers and Cowboys. But I had a great time. Like this game was just really, really fun. I, man, like how crazy is it that we got such a good, interesting game? Week one. I think week one of the NFL season is going to be unbelievable. There's so many games. I'll talk about that later in the show. Uh, but for now, before I go to break, uh, there are four fo- – can't even talk. There are four college football games that you should pay attention to this weekend. They should be on your radar. It's week two of college football. Game number one is number 15, Texas at Arkansas. Texas is about to join the SEC. This is kind of a sneak preview of them playing an SEC team. I'm excited to see how competitive it is between – Texas and Arkansas' SEC roster. Now, game number two is number 21, Utah, playing at BYU. It's a fun game. It's in Provo. Rivalry game. That'll be interesting. Like, I don't know if it's going to be a good game or not, but I'm certainly going to, you know, when Saturday comes to a close, go back and say, what was the score? Is it worth watching? Is it interesting? Uh, Another rivalry game, you have number 10, Iowa, at number 9, Iowa State. Uh, Shout out to my buddy, um... (laughs) <laughs> on Patreon, man. I'm thinking of you. I know it'll be really, really fun. Uh, and then finally, you have number 12, Oregon, at number three, Ohio State. And by the way, Iowa State, you know who you are. I'm not, I don't need to say your name. Uh, number 12, Oregon, at number three, Ohio State. It's going to be, I don't know that it's going to be a good game. Ohio State should dominate Oregon, but I'm certainly going to have it on my radar. It's one of, there's not very many great games this week in college football. This is one of those games where, even though Ohio State should win very, very easily, I find it interesting. I'm definitely going to check in and say, huh. What happened? Did Oregon even compete at all? Probably not, but keep your eye on Oregon at Ohio State, uh, 12th ranked team in the nation against the number three ranked team in the nation. And it's funny, like there's that narrative that we're going to have um, an expanded college football playoff where 12 teams get in. And I think we'll see an example of what that will look like this weekend where you'll see how big the gap is between the 12th best team in college football and the number three ranked team in college football. It's it, the gap between Oregon and Ohio State is going to be massive. I think Ohio State is going to win by like 30 points. So keep your eye on that game. And uh, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we will do, I want to talk about the top storylines in the NFL week one. Later, we'll do Ask Zach. Actually, really, immediately next, it is 12.32 in the morning. I should go to bed. Uh, I should let my neighbors sleep around me. What I'm going to do is go to bed, probably put out this breakout because I can do that quietly without bothering my neighbors. Wake up at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, finish recording the rest of the show. We'll do the top storylines from NFL Week 1. We will talk about a couple Super Bowl contenders. We have Ask Zach coming up. Uh, My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. And for me, it'll be nine hours. For you, it'll be only a couple seconds. My name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. 
All right, we are back. Hope you're doing very, very well. Uh, as I promised, it has been 10 hours, roughly. I went to sleep. Uh, well, first of all, I, I got the video uploaded from last night, got some more work done, went to sleep. Here we are the very next day. Uh, I want to jump backwards, actually, talk about the Cowboys-Buccaneers game just a little bit more. Um, there was a moment on that final game-winning drive where a pass interference call could have been called on wide receiver Chris Godwin. There was like a moment where uh, there was debate. Uh, even the guy broadcasting, like the rules analyst said, hey, that's offensive pass interference. I don't know, man. I, I've seen a lot of people. Clearly, it's very divisive because people I, I saw like, Charles Woodson said that's offensive pass interference. I've seen other people say it's not. And I'm like, I, there, there clearly is no right answer. But to me, if you ask me, Zach Schaumler, hey, is that offensive pass interference? I would say, no, it wasn't. And here's why. In my opinion, pass interference partially happens when people fully extend their arm. Something that coaches teach their young players often is that you can chicken wing Receivers, they call it chicken winging. You don't want to push off when you're trying to get separation, but you break off a route. You might chicken wing a guy, meaning like you lift your elbow just a little bit to kind of create a tiny bit of push where if you fully extend your arm, pass interference can't do it. Chicken wing is allowed. Chris Godwin chicken winged <laughs> the corner. Uh, he didn't fully extend his arm. The corner also fell back on his own and frankly like had a big massive head reaction, which he wasn't touched at all. So I've seen people call it a flop. I've seen people say it's offensive pass interference. I've seen people just argue everything. There was a lot of contact. It was a, a highly contested pass. The receiver won. I think another thing that saves it and makes it not pass interference for me is that the location of the throw was not really in a spot where the corner could make a play at. It's a back shoulder throw. If Tom Brady throws that front shoulder and Chris Godwin chicken wings the corner, the corner falls, he catches the ball, yeah. That's offensive pass interference, but the location of the ball also helps it be a no call, in my opinion. It's divisive, uh, divisive, divisive. People say both, but my point is that I, I could see it going either way. But I think in that moment, Chris Godwin did not fully extend his arm. It's the final drive, and it's just, it, I think it's a good no call to say, well, it's a back shoulder throw. The corner would have had a hard time making a play on anyway. He fell backwards, he heavily reacted to something that didn't eat his head moved backwards and it's like he didn't actually get touched so to me that's a good no call very complicated though not clear and uh, I, i'm curious to see more calls like that happen down the year as things go on uh, i also <sighs> i'm i might get myself in trouble here uh, i have a theory the nfl has this really really controversial new taunting penalty and i i hate it it drives me nuts um i I don't know, man. I like trash talk. I like when receivers and players are allowed to, like anybody, any player should be allowed to have personality and express themselves. And I think talking trash makes football more fun. When I played, I would talk trash. I, there was a, a great play, uh, and it great's the wrong word. I, I threw a game-winning touchdown pass over a corner once in high school against our, our, our league rival. And I ran and I ran and jumped over top of their corner. So I, I threw a touchdown pass on like a hitch route. Corner missed the tackles, laying on the ground, really, really sad. Guy named, a guy named Holden. And uh, I, I, he talked a bunch of trash on Twitter all week leading up and was just legendary for talking smack. So throwing the game-winning touchdown pass against this kid was like, oh, what's up, buddy? And he's laying on the ground after giving up the game-winning touchdown pass. And I'm, I'm running after the play, and I see him in front of me, and I run and jump over him and go, what's up, mother... You know, and, and like that... That's fun. That makes football more exciting. And I love, I love talking trash. So I, I think it should be allowed. But he, here's my conspiracy theory. And again, I hope I can say this. Um, I look at an incident like, gosh, Miles Garrett and Mason Rudolph had a really controversial moment where one of them says a racial slur was used and it led to punches. And there's a lot of he said, she said. One guy got suspended, one guy it, – it's very complicated. And I think what the NFL did is they learned from that moment and said, huh, we don't want our players having controversy for stuff that's not about their gameplay. Like, as, I think the NFL is basically trying to tell the world we don't trust our players to not say offensive stuff to each other. So rather than say, hey, don't be crappy to each other, don't be a jerk, don't say – racially insensitive stuff. They're like, we're not even going to go there. Like, you just can't talk to each other. And I think that's a bit extreme. I think it's 
it's unfortunate that the NFL appears to not trust its players to talk trash to each other. Um, uh, the NFL basically says we just are going to say you can't talk to each other at all. That way we avoid controversy, protect ourselves from the future. Uh, but I just I think of that Miles Garrett, Mason Rudolph thing. That's the most extreme example. But basically, I think the NFL just said, look, we want to deal with stuff that is football related. We don't want to deal with non football stuff like a 20 second moment where a guy says something crappy to another player. One guy gets offended. It blows up in the media. They're like, we don't want to deal with this at all. And so we're just going to outlaw taunting at all. I think it's stupid. I, I, I think honestly, I wish taunting was allowed. But what it tells me is the NFL doesn't trust players to not cross a line sometimes. And so uh, they decided they made a unilateral decision. Is that the, the right way to put it? They made a, an executive decision saying, hey, because we don't trust you, we're not letting anybody talk smack at all. I don't know if that theory makes sense, but that's my theory on it. The NFL thinks they're doing the right thing uh, by saying you can't talk smack at all. And uh, I, think, I think it's frustrating. Clearly, I like smack, uh, trash talk. But if you can't trust people to not cross a line and say racially insensitive stuff, which I'll tell you what, the NFL does not want to deal with that kind of headline. Uh, there, I, I think they are uh, just going to outlaw all of it. All right, uh, let's shift gears. I, look, and, and by the way, I don't mean to, I, I, I never, I try to never mention race and domestic violence, like certain things in the NFL. I, I just, I avoid them. Uh, and I, I hope that if I offended anyone somehow by, I, I try to be thoughtful with that Mason Rudolph Miles Garrett moment. I didn't actually really cover it. Uh, but looking back, I think that is part of what, that was one of the moments that spurred on this new policy by the NFL to say, hey, we're just not going to allow trash talk at all because it's a whole can of worms they don't want to open and deal with. Let's shift gears. There are 12 things I cannot wait to watch during NFL week one. It's going to be an incredible weekend of football. Uh, the number one thing I can't wait to watch is the New York Jets at the Carolina Panthers. Uh, now, here is a 100% factual statement. The Jets traded Sam Darnold, their former quarterback, to Carolina and replaced him with a rookie quarterback, Zach Wilson. So now my opinion, I cannot wait to see who's better. I think Zach Wilson is a slightly better quarterback. I think he, he's a, a bit of an upgrade, actually, on Sam Darnold currently. But I also like Sam Darnold. I think Sam Darnold can have a good NFL career. And I would really enjoy watching him beat his former NFL team, a team that did not support him, didn't get him help around him, had a, gave him a bad coaching staff, no offensive line. Like, watching Sam Darnold kind of get revenge against the team that discarded him, oh, man, what a fun storyline there. I would love that. Uh, also, it's two evenly matched teams, like Carolina and New York. They're both rebuilding. So it should be a very, very fun game. Jets at Panthers week one. Uh, number two, and number two, the Bears at the Rams. I cannot wait to watch the new Rams quarterback, Matthew Stafford. Uh, my biggest regret this offseason is not finishing my Matthew Stafford film analysis. I did all the research, uh, and then I had—this was the hardest offseason of my entire life. I moved over 2,000 miles on an airplane with three suitcases. That's basically—I started a whole new life, uh, and— in the process of that, what got left behind was, and by the way, the, the film website I used was having problems and I was having a hard time accessing film. Uh, and so I, I, even though I did all the research, I actually watched all the film. I couldn't, I couldn't track it down. I was busy. And so I never finished my Matthew Stafford film analysis. And I'm like, dang it. I regret that because first of all, I know that would have got like a million views. It would have been a massive deal. But number two, I, I never got to share with people like how good Matthew Stafford is. And here's what the film says about Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford is amazing. He deserves so much more praise and respect than he's ever gotten during his NFL career. He got buried in Detroit on a bad team in a market that's not very big in the media that people don't pay attention to. In L.A. with the Rams, way more eyeballs, a better team around him, more attention. He is going to get all of the credit he finally deserves. And I think he could lead the Rams to a Super Bowl, so... Can't wait to watch Stafford in L.A. Also, week one, I can't wait to see the Bears offensive line struggle to guard the Rams defensive line. Aaron Donald is going to have a field day. And uh, Andy Dalton, like over under, will Andy Dalton get sacked five times? Six? Seven? Like, where, where's the, the, that'd be a fun, I, I don't gamble at all. But that's one of the only things that'd be like fun to have a side bet with my friends of like, hey, uh, over under, Andy Dalton getting sacked five times against the Rams week one? I don't know. 
Uh, but I, I'm really interested and excited to watch the uh, Bears at the Rams in L.A. Number three, Dolphins at Patriots. Tua Tungavaloa against Mac Jones. Two former Alabama quarterbacks, two good teams. By the way, it's a great matchup. And also a really good, interesting quarterback battle where, you know, the Patriots do not have their top corner, Stephon Gilmore. Uh, he's still hurt. That's going to help Tua. Both teams are pretty good. It's a division matchup. They both have a shot at the playoffs, the Patriots and the Dolphins. And I think Mac Jones might be a better quarterback than Tua. Even though he's a rookie, uh, I, I think, man, he's really setting himself up for success. I, I think the Patriots are going to be very, very good. And it'll be really fun to watch the Patriots and Dolphins. Number four, Packers and Saints. This game is not happening in New Orleans. Hurricane Ida moved it to Jacksonville. Obviously, look, it'll be really fun to watch Aaron Rodgers. I love anytime I get to watch the Packers, it's like comfort food because Aaron is so good. It's just good football. It's fun to watch. But Jameis Winston is actually the guy I really, really want to watch week one uh, during the Packers game. I think it's possible that Jameis Winston could have the best year of his entire career. He's the new Saints quarterback. He's replacing Drew Brees. He's a former number and overall pick. He's a Heisman Trophy winner. We all know how talented Jameis is. And he's got a lot of help. He's got a great offensive line. Alvin Kamara, a good defense. Marquez Calloway is a stud receiver. He's going to have a breakout year. No Michael Thomas this week. He's out with an injury. Uh, but I really cannot wait to see how Jameis Winston's second chance and his opportunity to revive his career begins this week against the Green Bay Packers. And uh, I don't know that the Saints will win, but it'll give us definitely a good feel of how good this football team is and how the year is going to go for the New Orleans Saints. Number five, the L.A. Chargers at Washington. Are the Chargers as good as I think they're going to be? I think L.A. is going to be, like, both the Rams and the Chargers are going to be fantastic. But the Chargers really added to their offensive line. They made some upgrades. They have second-year quarterback Justin Herbert coming off a Rookie of the Year award. And I really want to watch the Chargers' offensive line against Washington's really, really good defensive line. How does that matchup play out? Who wins? Plus, it's going to be fun to watch the new Washington quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Should be a very, very interesting game. Really good test for both teams to see, like, hey, is, are the Chargers as good as I think? And how's the rest of the team aside from Washington's defensive line? Number six, the Jaguars at Houston. I believe this is Houston's best chance to win a game all year. You are a veteran team in Houston with a rookie coach. Yes, David Coley has never coached a game in the NFL before as a head coach. But he's been in the league for a long time. And so Houston's a veteran team, an older roster, a lot of veterans. Coach who's been in the league for a while. Going up against Jacksonville, a team who they got a rookie quarterback. They have a coach who Urban Meyer has never coached in the NFL before this year. And I think it's very possible Houston could steal a win this week before the Jack Because the Jaguars, by the time they play Houston again later in the year, the Jaguars are going to be a much better, more evolved football team. So if... Houston's going to get any shot. Like, this is their best shot to win a game all year is against a Jaguars team before Jacksonville has a shot to really figure it out and put all the pieces together later in the year. Number seven, 49ers at Lions is going to be really, really fun. I just want to watch Jared Goff, the new Lions quarterback. I'm afraid he's going to be bad this year. Uh, but look, I have an open mind, and I like what the Lions are doing. Amon Ross St. Brown, Tyrell Williams, TJ Hawkinson, uh, a better offensive line than Chicago. Like, Jared Goff has some help, and I, I want to see how he does, but I don't see how Jared Goff goes from the L.A. Rams, a good football team, downgrades a team, goes to a worse team, the Detroit Lions, and has a better year. Number eight, Seattle at Indy. Carson Wentz is a new Colts quarterback. I just, I just want to watch it, man. I want to see how things are going to go. Uh, I believe that Carson Wentz is going to be outstanding. His ceiling is potentially a Super Bowl run. Like Carson Wentz could lead this team a long, long way. But I'm curious if he's going to prove me right this year. Like, he, he's got he pairing up with his former head coach, Frank Reich. And Seattle's a team that is down. I don't think they're as good as normal. And so if the Colts are as good as I think they could be, and Seattle is as bad as I think they could be, Indianapolis should win this game by, like, 20 points. So uh, keep your eye on that game. Number nine, Broncos at Giants. The Giants' defense is solid. I, I, I worry about their quarterback, Daniel Jones. But... Their defense is good, and the Broncos have an amazing roster. 
So the question is, can Teddy Bridgewater, the Broncos quarterback, be the quarterback Denver needs? And so that evaluation process is going to begin in New York against the Giants. Uh, I also want to see how Daniel Jones, the Giants quarterback, does against this really good Broncos defense. They look really good. Daniel Jones could struggle. Plus, another storyline here is that Broncos offensive coordinator Pat Shermer used to be the Giants head coach. And so for him, Pat Shermer, it's kind of a revenge match. This game is endlessly interesting between the two quarterbacks, the offensive coordinator, a good roster that has questions in Denver. I am excited to watch Broncos at Giants. Number 10, Browns at Chiefs. The Browns go to Kansas City on the road. On paper, the Browns roster is amazing. Like one of the best, if not the very most best, most complete, you know, best complete, most complete team in the entire NFL. Like the Browns have an incredible group of players. But it's not Madden. Like, can they go on the road to a packed house in Kansas City and beat Patrick Mahomes and his team? I don't know. Casey's not as good as they were last year, in my opinion. The Browns could win. It'll be a really interesting kind of litmus test for the Cleveland Browns. Number 11, Steelers at Bills. Uh, Seems like it's going to be an all-around great game. Uh, If the Bills can win a Super Bowl then this is a game... So let me me back up. If the Bills are a team that has uh, the goal of winning a Super Bowl and they believe they are one of the top, very best teams in the NFL, like the cream of the crop, then this is the kind of game that Buffalo needs to win convincingly. I want to see Buffalo win this game and be like, yeah, flex their muscles a little bit. We are a top dog in the NFL. Uh, The Steelers defensive coordinator gave a warning. He said that if Josh Allen wants to run, he's going to get hit. I'm not quoting that word for word, but basically that was the point of what he said is, hey, we're going to hit you if you're going to run Josh Allen. That's an interesting warning there. Uh, Big Ben, the Steelers quarterback, was saying that the offense might need some time to gel before they get rolling. It's very, very interesting. Um, I I don't know. I'm just, I'm fascinated by this game. Steelers at Bills are two potential playoff teams. Buffalo should be better. And let's see how that plays out when things actually get, you know, things get real, pads go on. Uh, It's one thing to look at a team on paper. And Buffalo should be the better team, but let's see if they can deliver on what I think they can this year. And it starts with a victory over Pittsburgh. Number 12, I cannot wait to watch the Arizona Cardinals at the Tennessee Titans. Uh, This is a game that's going to be really, really interesting. Christian Fulton is the Titans' number two corner. He's a starter, but he's not their main guy. And it's a weakness for Tennessee. He's not, he doesn't have a track record that I trust. He's a guy going into year two, didn't play very much as a rookie last year. Elevating him to a starter uh, felt like wishful thinking, actually, a little bit. And I know that a team like Arizona with amazing receivers, DeAndre Hopkins, A.J. Green, Christian Kirk, they are going to attack that weakness. They are going to find Christian Fulton and just go after him over and over and over again, attacking him vertically. So I'm curious, can Tennessee stop Arizona? But then on offense for Tennessee— They have a three-headed monster, A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, Derrick Henry. And if you load the box against Tennessee, like you you put a bunch of people in the box to stop the run and say, we are going to come after that stopping that running game. Well, Tennessee can beat you downfield by just, hey, you got one-on-one coverage now with A.J. Green and Julio Jones. We're going to throw the ball over the top. So I don't really know how you defend Tennessee yet. I'm curious to watch how that plays out. Either way, I, I think... Cardinals at Titans should be a really fun game, maybe even a, a shootout. So keep your eye on that game. Those are the things I'm really, really excited to watch during NFL Week 1. A lot of questions will be answered. A lot of people like, we'll know more Week 10, obviously, than we know Week 1. But people that need to have a good first game, Jared Goff needs to, doesn't need to win, but Jared Goff needs to not look awful. Jameis Winston needs to look good. Carson Wentz needs to look good. Like New quarterbacks on new teams need to have a good start. And uh, I am very excited to watch a lot of that kind of stuff. And then great matchups all around. I think Tennessee at Arizona could be a high-scoring, really fun, very, very interesting game. Okay, let's talk Super Bowl. Um, I want to share my teams that I think are a favorite to go to the Super Bowl. And I also want to talk about my dream Super Bowl. So if you said, hey, Zach, pick two teams to play each other in the Super Bowl in February. What is your dream Super Bowl? I really want the Tampa Bay Buccaneers against the... New England Patriots, Tom Brady against this former team and against Bill Belichick. Oh my goodness. That would be so much fun to watch Mac Jones play Tom Brady. And can, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there, but I think the Patriots are good enough to get to a Super Bowl. They have a really good roster. If Mac Jones plays 
out of his mind. Definitely the Patriots have a roster good enough to go to a Super Bowl. The question is, can Mac Jones take them there? I think it's possible. You got two tight ends. They got a good defense. Uh, they get Stephon Gilmore back later in the year. Like, I think the Patriots are an underrated Super Bowl team. I also would love to see the Buccaneers against the Buffalo Bills. The Bills, like, they were so happy. Bills fans were so, so happy when Tom Brady left the Patriots and left the AFC East. Imagine if Buffalo finally gets to a Super Bowl and the guy they run into is their old rival, Tom Brady. And how, how much more heartbreaking if Buffalo, who they played Tom Brady for years and got dominated, Buffalo got their butts kicked year in and year out by Tom Brady when he was with the Patriots. Imagine Buffalo finally gets to a Super Bowl and then loses to Tom Brady. Like, oh, what a heartbreaking story. It'd be unbelievable. Now, here are my nine Super Bowl favorites. I mentioned the Patriots. They are probably the weakest team in the AFC that I think have a shot at a Super Bowl. These are teams that are built with, they're really good rosters that have a shot at a Super Bowl, in my opinion. In the AFC, we have the Cleveland Browns. They are unbelievable. On paper, their roster is fantastic. Uh, Now, can they go on the road and win a game in Kansas City or Buffalo? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm curious to see how that plays out, but I, I really believe in the Cleveland Browns to get Odell Beckham Jr. back. They're stacked on offense. They're stacked on defense. They have depth everywhere. The Browns are a team that, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, have a legitimate shot at a Super Bowl. The LA Chargers, man, uh, their offensive line is better. They added a lot of people on, on defense too. New head coach, Justin Herbert. The Chargers absolutely have a shot at a Super Bowl. They're a team that I think a lot of people aren't realizing how good they are. Buffalo, got better. They went to the AFC title game last year. They added a couple other pieces. I think Buffalo could be really good. Kansas City is a team that's weaker. I'm not as excited about Kansas City as I was last year. Uh, They have some problems. They lost a couple people. Uh, But I will say, like, (sighs) doubt Kansas City all you want. They still have Patrick Mahomes. And at the end of the day, We've learned that Patrick Mahomes is a good enough quarterback. He can elevate a team with a problem or two. So I would not count out Kansas City just yet. In the NFC, you have, and I talked about the Patriots already. In the NFC, you talk about, uh, what am I talking about? Uh, In the NFC, you have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a team that is loaded. We saw them uh, in the opening game of the NFL season. They are, it's hard to find a problem with that roster. I think Tom Brady could average four touchdowns a game this year, maybe even break the single season passing touchdown record in the NFL. Uh, I think the Buccaneers are fantastic. The Green Bay Packers are really good. They have a question mark at their number two corner spot. Right now, they have Kevin King starting as their number two corner. They're hoping that Eric uh, Eric Stokes, the guy they drafted out of Georgia in the first round, can elevate himself and become a starting corner there. That's a question for Green Bay. Uh, the Rams, man, Matthew Stafford is going to be unbelievable this year. People are not understanding how good Matthew Stafford is. Like, The Rams went to a Super Bowl with Jared Goff. They had the best defense in the NFL last year. They've got a great coach, Sean McVay. I don't know how you don't look at the Rams and call them a Super Bowl favorite. And for some reason, people just do not understand how legitimately good Matthew Stafford is. Then you have the Saints, a team that they lost Drew Brees, although you could argue that maybe Drew Brees was holding them back a little bit. His arm was waning. He, he couldn't drive the ball downfield the way he wanted to. He was getting older. Like, we didn't see Drew Brees in his prime last year. We saw Drew Brees at, you know, in, in his, later in his career, an aging guy who did not have the arm strength he really wanted. So I think it's possible that Jameis Winston comes in, is really talented. If he makes good decisions, could lead them a long way, maybe even to a Super Bowl. Remember, the Saints still have a great offensive line. They've got a great front seven. They've got, uh, they just traded for Bradley Roby, the corner from Houston, who's going to sit out for a week, but he'll come back. He'll be great. Like the Saints are still a really, really complete roster. Yeah, they lost Emmanuel Sanders, an, an old receiver. They lost a tight end, Jared Cook. They still have Marquez Callaway is going to have a breakout year at receiver. They still have uh, Michael Thomas will come back, hopefully after week six. He's on the pup list right now. Do not discount the Buccaneers. Like I always talk about how important it is to have a good offensive line and the New Orleans Saints have that. So uh, I'm getting, you know, I hope I didn't say Buccaneers. Or I'm getting confused with Jameis Winston. And I know he used to be a Buccaneers quarterback. Now he's in New Orleans. But I really have a lot of faith in Jameis Winston. And if he does as well as I think he could, which we all know the potential he has, and now he's got a good coach, Sean Payton, the Saints are certainly a team that has the potential 
to win a Super Bowl this year. Now, there are two dark horse teams I now want to talk about, and literally, uh, they're horse teams. It's the Broncos and the Colts. So the Colts, in my opinion, if Carson Wentz plays as good as I know he's capable of, like if Carson Wentz has one of the best years of his career, then look, the Colts have a shot at a Super Bowl. They have a great offensive line, a great front seven. Linemen win games, in my opinion, and if Carson Wentz is the quarterback they've been waiting for and hoping he will be, then the Colts have a shot at a Super Bowl for sure. Now, this one's going to be controversial. It's my, my Super Bowl dark horse team number two. Literally, you know, dark horse. It's really fun. Uh, and that happened naturally, by the way. I didn't plan that. I do not believe the Denver Broncos are going to win a Super Bowl this year. I have them going 9-8. and eight, But I also respect their talent. Uh, they have a better roster in Denver than most other teams in the NFL. And magic could happen. Their only question is at quarterback. How good can Teddy Bridgewater be? So I want to leave the door open for magic to happen. If Teddy Bridgewater has the best year of his career, then Denver could win it all. Remember Trent Dilfer did it. Nick Foles did it. Joe Flacco did it. Even like, look, an old Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning was not his best at the end of his career. He was barely able to win, barely able to play. But an old frankly, gimpy Peyton Manning found a way to win a Super Bowl in Denver, by the way. So if any fan base should believe that, hey, a bad quarterback with a really good roster can win a Super Bowl, it's actually Denver who saw it literally happen with Peyton Manning. So I I feel weird comparing Teddy Bridgewater to Peyton Manning, but I don't feel weird comparing Teddy Bridgewater to Peyton Manning at the end of his career, who Peyton Manning was not the same quarterback in his final year with the Denver Broncos, but he won a Super Bowl and retired. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I respect Denver's roster so much that I think they could even win a title with Teddy Bridgewater. All right, guys, uh, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we will do Ask Zach. We will talk about Formula One a little bit. My name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope we're doing very, very well. Uh, I am, boy, I'm really tired, man. Uh, It's been a long marathon trying to get ready for the NFL season. Got a lot of stuff still to come out and uh, about two more hours of recording left before uh, well, I guess tomorrow on Saturday. So I'm doing the very best I can. I want to start by talking about this, though. Before we end the show today, I had to mention this. Formula One driver George Russell is now officially headed to Mercedes. I've been waiting and waiting. We all thought this was going to happen, but finally it got announced. It's not a surprise. Uh, to me, it's an upgrade to go from Valtteri Botas to George Russell, a young 23-year-old, really talented driver. Uh, and, and I want to ask yourself, I, w- I want you to ask yourself, if Mercedes didn't have Lewis Hamilton and their number one driver was Valtteri Bottas, do you think he would win a world title by himself? Do you? I, I don't. And even if you think he does, I would still say that George Russell has a better opportunity than Valtteri Bottas. But Mercedes has been frustrated over and over again, trying and waiting for Valtteri Bottas to figure it out, and he hasn't. He, it, it, once they realized his limitations... They replaced him, and that's exactly what you should do. Once you realize the, replace, the, the, the limitations of whether it's a tool you're using or a player you have on your roster or the, whatever it is, right? Once you realize the limitation, you move on, unless you're sentimental. And Mercedes is a massive company trying to win races. They can't afford to pay Valtteri Bottas and keep him on a, a team with a limited roster spot, a limited driver's seat, and say, ah, we're, we keep you because we like you. No, they want to move forward and win, so... It absolutely made sense for them to replace Valtteri Bottas. George Russell, a rising star, 23 years old. He'll be much better in the faster Mercedes car, obviously, than he was in Williams. But the fact that, like, it's pretty interesting. He found a way to get to Q3 with the Williams. He got to a podium. I know it, there wasn't really a race a couple of weeks ago in the rain. But still, on paper, like, 50 years from now, no one's going to remember that George Russell didn't actually race. They'll say he got to a podium with the Williams? Are you kidding me? So, um, look, if Lewis retires, Mercedes would be ready to have George Russell be their next guy competing for championships. And uh, this is the best thing for Mercedes, obviously. They needed to get ready for the day. There was questions after last year. Is Lewis Hamilton going to come back? And I think Mercedes realized, we got to start figuring out our succession plan to our next guy. And uh, I'm excited to watch Lewis Hamilton and George Russell race side by side hopefully for a couple of years. But if Lewis Hamilton retired out of nowhere, 
At least Mercedes knows they're in good hands with George Russell. Here, let me drink some water real quick. Dude, I, I had some, uh, some cheese and crackers for lunch. I, I think I'm allergic to cheese, man. Like, th- there's just no way. Like, I, I feel a strong allergic reaction in my throat. I just, it's not good for me, man. I always, I love cheese and I want it so badly. Every time I have it, I, I feel horrible afterwards. All right, it's time for Ask Zach. Hand me talk. It's time for Ask Zach, my favorite part of the show. Uh, in case you do not know how it works, you go to patreon.com forward slash Zach Shomler. You give a dollar a month. You can give more if you want to. Please do. It literally pays my rent. Uh, but a dollar a month gives you access to submit questions on Patreon. Now, uh, for transparency's sake, if you submit a question on Patreon, I do not guarantee to read it on the show. My only guarantee is I look at every single question with my eyeballs. I pick the top couple and read them on the show. I want to start today with Logan. It's a fun write-in. He says, oh, Zach, Florida is back on track. We lost Trask, but we didn't lose sight of the task. Playoff hopes are in our grasp. Oh, my goodness. It's like a, it's like a Dr. Seuss rhyme. He says, Anthony Richardson. Well, he says, Anthony, period, Richardson, period, future Heisman. Dude, you were hyped, Logan. He said, enough said. Thoughts? I know it was FAU, but still, my guy looked insane. Logan, I am not even going to answer that question. I'm not going to watch. I love you, man. I love you so much. I'm not going to watch Florida Atlantic against Florida. And of course, Florida's quarterback looks good. An SEC team playing Florida Atlantic is not impressive. Like, oh, no, no offense, dude, but come on, man. Like, you're overhyping the guy a lot. Let's wait until Florida plays a real football team before we start judging their quarterback. I will say he's on my radar now. Uh, but, I, you know, this was maybe a waste of time. But, Logan, the way you wrote that, oh, Zach, Florida is back on track. We lost Trask, but we didn't lose sight of the task. Playoff hopes are in our grasp. First of all, hard to read if you have a little bit of a lisp like I do. But, Jesus, dude, are you Dr. Seuss? I love the rhyme. I, it was too well written of an intro for me to completely ignore that question. And, uh, Logan, well done. Kate Connor writes in. He says, hey, Zach, Cardinals fan here, just wondering. How far do you think Kyler Murray can go? We all obviously know his upside, but people always bring up his height and how that restricts his ability to throw to the middle of the field. How serious of an issue do you think this is? And is it something he can overcome or something we will just have to learn to live with? Connor, um, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't. This whole rumor and kind of narrative that Kyler Murray can't throw the ball over the middle, it's wrong. It's just not true. Uh, and first of all, so here's how a quarterback, I, I think I've talked about this before, but I'll repeat it here for Kyler Murray. Quarterbacks don't throw the ball over top of their offensive linemen or over top of receiver or of defenders. I mean, uh, like how did Drew Brees, a short quarterback, a hall of fame quarterback, throw the ball over the middle? How does Russell Wilson do it? You throw between offensive linemen, you find windows between guys, even Taller quarterbacks, guys who are 6'3", 6'4", have, they have 6'11", 6'9", 6'8", offensive linemen blocking for them. You're not going to throw the ball over top of people or, or even, sorry, excuse me, your arm is higher, I guess, than the top of their head. But you can't see over top of them. It's not about the ability. So I, I just think it's a, this fallacy is kind of weird to me. Even taller quarterbacks can't see over. A 6'3", quarterback can't see over top of a six foot eight offensive lineman. It's just, it's a weird thing. People don't seem to understand. You see between them, not over top. Uh, Kyler has the talent and potential to be the best quarterback in the entire NFL. And if Kyler Murray works hard enough, like he could be, he has that ability. I, I'm not trying to slight his arm, his work ethic, but my point is to say that the sky is the limit for Kyler Murray. He's got an incredible arm, great ability to read defenses, incredibly talented, can run around, he, he's amazing, and I, I don't I, – I, I, almost a little bit I'm kind of like, Connor, how dare you put any limitations on Kyler Murray? Uh, he says, either way, I can't wait to see his third year of growth, and I hope he had an awesome year. We'll have an awesome year. Uh, glad to see your love in Hawaii too. Connor, thank you. Uh, I'll do a film analysis of Kyler Murray's year after the season ends, but I think Kyler's awesome, man. And I – like this concern, you know, how, just wondering how far you think Kyler can go. Can he throw the ball over the middle? He can be the best quarterback in the NFL. He has potential to do that. And I'd give him a year or two more of, of growing and development. But, oh, my goodness, Kyler Murray is amazing. And, and don't forget that. And Cardinals fans, like, don't forget how lucky you are to have him. 
I mean, you could have had Josh Rosen this entire time. So I don't know, man. Never, never take uh, Kyler Murray for granted, Connor. Okay, Teddy writes in. Teddy says, hi, Zach. It seems pretty obvious to me and probably anyone else who watches that you love the process of working on your podcast. This is something that I've always struggled with in my creative endeavors. I always find the end result rewarding, but I struggle to love the process of creating it. Do you have any tips on how to appreciate the process of making something like your show? Thanks. Teddy, I I don't mean to be harsh. And I, I don't really have advice. I mean, I... Either you love it or you don't. That's, that's how it works in my experience. And I, I guess you should ask yourself, would you do it for free? Would you do it if nobody watched? Would you do it if the content you made never got released or never came out? Like if you edit photos, would you edit photos and then put them in a file and hide them forever? Because if you really love editing, you don't care about putting it out there. I think it's valuable, valuable to put it out there. That's not my point. But I enjoy the process of creation way more than I enjoy the process of getting comments or getting views. I, I love sitting in my office making stuff. And when I was in high school, I met Trent Dilfer. And his message to all of us quarterbacks at the Elite 11 was, do you love football or do you love what football brings you? Do you love the attention, the girls, the interviews? Or do you love the process? Do you love waking up at five in the morning to practice footwork or studying the playbook. I mean, I remember screaming out protection calls out loud. Wide 80! Like just, you know, alert, alert, move over here. Like just going through my cadences, practicing play calls, all that kind of stuff, practicing my calls at the line of scrimmage. And I did it in a boiler room in college. And it was so loud in that room that no one could hear me screaming at the top of my lungs in my college building. And I was doing that because I was trying to learn the playbook. And my point is this, like, you talk about making content. Do you love the money and the views? Or do you love getting up at 5 a.m. to work at your desk. Do you love it so much you would sleep under your desk while a video renders? Like, I remember in college, I slept under my desk all the time because I was waiting for stuff to upload or load. I'm like, well, I can sleep for two hours while this uploads to YouTube, and then when it's up, I'll I'll set a timer, I'll wake up, add a description, add a title, add a thumbnail. Like, I remember doing all that process. And so um, I just encourage you, like, do you enjoy making content or you do you just like the thought of people watching it do you like the thought of people giving you credit for making something uh i pull all-nighters because i'm having fun tinkering my office right like i i don't pull all-nighters because i i, mean, I guess i do because it's my job but like you don't you don't put in that much work unless you love what you're doing and, and money for me allows me to keep making stuff like that when i when i see a new paycheck i'm like oh sweet i can pay my bills this month and i can make more content i don't have to go back to getting another crappy job right because what i would hate to do is work at uh, i worked at a car wash for years i don't want to go back to working at a car wash and be trying to make content on the side because i'm making content whether i'm doing this job full-time or not right no matter what i'm making this show i love doing it so uh i just i I will say being well-rested really really helps uh, it's hard to be creative when you're tired. That could also be a factor for you. Make sure you're fully rested. But uh, also, that's an excuse. Like, you you got to push yourself a lot before you worry about, are you too tired to work? You know what I mean? Like, I would just ask yourself, you know, do you love it? Do you love creating? Or, or, or do you love what creating brings you, which is attention and views and whatever? So, Teddy, I hope that helps. Caleb writes in. He says, hey, Zach. Which week one game will have the best fan atmosphere? Whose fans will be the happiest to come back? Man, uh, Buffalo has a home game. That'll be great. Kansas City and Cleveland, the game is in Kansas City. Those fans will be amazing at Arrowhead Stadium. But I'm going to say the Raiders. The Las Vegas Raiders have not had a regular season game with fans at all. And so Monday Night Football, week one, brand new stadium, a packed house. The first time Vegas has ever had fans in their stadium. Raiders fans are crazy. Caleb, I'm going to answer that way. I think that the Raiders fans are going to be the most excited to be back. But again, shout out to Buffalo, shout out to Kansas City. Those two cities are going to be electric as well. Kenny writes in, he says, it's a long one. He says, hey, Zach, I asked you this last year around this time, and I think it would be fun to revisit this time around. Which team do you think has the best chance of going from worst to first in their division this year? Last year's division losers were the Jets, Broncos, Bengals, Jaguars, Eagles, 49ers, Lions, and Falcons. 
Well, I don't think they are going to win their division. I think the Niners have the best chance to win their division out of these eight. Sorry, Eagles fans. But the NFC West is going to be super competitive. I'm curious to hear your pick. Revisiting last year, you picked the Cardinals as a worst of first candidate as you were understandably very high in them before the start of last year. My favorite to do this was the Dolphins. Turns out we were both wrong, but there were, was one team that went from worst to first in their division from 2019 to 2020, the Washington football team. Thanks, Kenny from Cal. Uh, Kenny, I don't have a long response here. I just agree with you. If there's one team in the NFL that can go from last in their division to first, it is the 49ers. Um, it's not the Jaguars. It's not Cincinnati. It's not the Jets. Uh, Denver could, although I don't think they will. Uh, the 49ers, though, are a team that wasn't bad last year. They were just injured. Same with Denver, actually, too. Uh, but the 49ers, it's kind of cheating. Like It's not like the 49ers were terrible last year. The 49ers have their starting quarterback injured and a bunch of other people injured. So um, the 49ers are probably the best team in the NFL of all the eight teams that went last in their division last year. Guys, that is all I have. I have so much work to do. Uh, I, I got a lot more stuff to, to put out uh, before week one starts on Sunday. Uh, I probably, I, I'm thinking I might even put out a predictions episode, literally 6 a.m. East Coast time, the final one uh, on Sunday morning. So I have a lot of work to do until I see you next. I love you. I appreciate you. Hope you have a great day. I did this episode so that I could cover the Cowboys-Buccaneers game. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. But um, bum bam, we are done.